If you would, turn with me to Psalm 130 as we come near to the end of our seven-week sermon series looking at the seven penitential psalms. Last week we looked at the longest of these seven psalms, and this morning we come to the shortest of the seven penitential psalms. And uh, as has been our, um, what we've been doing over these seven weeks, I would ask that we stand together and read Psalm 130 uh, together this morning. Again, this was a tradition of the early church um, to read and sing through these psalms together yearly, and so I think it is fitting for us to do the same. And so if you... Um, would like to read from the screen. If you do not have the ESV translation, you're more than welcome to do that, as I will be reading from the ESV. Uh, But let's read this aloud together this morning, beginning in verse 1. Would you read with me? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you again as your people. We commit ourselves anew this day to the authority of your word. Lord, help us to sit under it well. Help us to listen well uh, to your word as truth. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds in this place from distraction this morning, that your gospel would be heralded above all things, that your truth would be held above all things, that we would sit under it as your people, as your children. Lord, I pray that you would indeed guard us from error. Keep us, Lord, uh, grounded in the truth of who you are. And God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would indeed be pleasing and acceptable before you in these moments. And it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm about to say something that is going to offend many of you car enthusiasts in the room, so I apologize in advance. You can correct me later. But the greatest truck ever made is not a Chevy. Uh, It is not a Ford, uh, but it is a little truck that was made in Japan in the 80s and the 90s called the Toyota Hilux. Uh, If you have ever lived overseas, uh, you have probably seen a Hilux. They are very popular. They still make them to this day, Uh, but the Hilux from the 80s and the 90s was known as being indestructible. Uh, And so if you're familiar with the the British show Top Gear, uh, they took a Hilux and literally tried to destroy it uh, and see if it would keep running. 
Uh, it got to the point where they, they flooded it in the tide of the ocean. It was covered in sand, and they were able to start it and drive it out. And the last thing they did with it was they put it on the third story of a building that they were going to implode. Uh, it fell from the third story, was covered by the rubble. They dug it out and drove it out of uh, the building. And recently, there's been some YouTubers who have tried to recreate this in drastic ways, dropping one from a helicopter. Uh, the Hilux is known for uh, the fact that no matter what you throw at it, it's faithful. Uh, now, we know, according to Psalm 102 that we looked at last week as we compared creation and the Creator, that everything in this world is fleeting. Everything is passing away. We can declare a truck to be faithful, but there will come a day when the Hilux will be no more. Uh, we know this from scripture as we saw in Psalm 102 last week and that carries over beautifully into Psalm 130. Psalm 102 was not a penitential psalm in the truest sense as Psalm 130 most definitely is but we see the beauty and the flow of scripture throughout these seven psalms that we've looked at uh, and in this passage Psalm 130 this morning we see an overarching theme that in and through this fallen world God is faithful. Um, this is also known as a psalm of ascents or a song of ascents. Uh, there are several psalms that are written uh, as such, written from the deepest depths up to the highest of heights, to the throne room of God himself. Uh, Martin Luther, in speaking of this psalm in particular, in particular called it a Pauline psalm. Uh, he felt that if Paul was to write a psalm, it would sound very much like this. If you are familiar with Paul's epistles, you know that he is heavy on the weight of sin, the confession of guilt, and also he has a strong confidence in God, which all comes through uh, in Psalm 130. And I would argue we see in all seven of the penitential psalms. We are reminded again this morning of the weight of our sin, the importance of confession, and all of that resting in our confidence in God, that he is indeed faithful. And so as we look at this passage, last week we noted that Psalm 102 was hard to really lay down the structure. What is the flow of the passage? Whereas Psalm 130 is a little bit easier for us to find a pattern or a flow. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this this morning in, in uh, four pairs. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and then 7 and 8 under this grand truth this morning that in and through this fallen world, God is faithful. So the first thing that we see here this morning in Psalm 130, in verses 1 and 2, is this. Even from the deepest depths of despair, God hears our cries for help. Uh, you see it there right away in verse 1, out of the depths. This has really been a theme throughout all of the penitential psalms. The, uh, the psalmists are writing from a season of sorrow. We don't just see this in these seven particular psalms. We see this throughout the book of psalms, psalms that are written from seasons of sorrow out of the depths of the pit. Uh, and this gives us a good opportunity to answer an important question that I think these verses answer for us. And the question is this, why is it that we look to God in times of trouble? And not just as Christians, but as human beings in general, why is it that humans look to a deity 
that is higher than themselves when they find themselves in trouble. Uh, Many years ago, an army chaplain wrote a book titled, There Are No Atheists in Foxholes. And the whole premise of the book was uh, that even someone who declares there is no God, when, when they are threatened, when their life is in danger, they cry out to some deity, to some being. And I think we can answer this question by, by seeing that it tells us uh, something about, about three things this morning. The first one in answering this question, why is it that we look to God in times of trouble, is first, it tells us something about not only the reality of God, but the reality and power of prayer. Charles Spurgeon had to say this about this. He said, when the creator gives his creature the power of thirst, it is because water exists to meet its thirst. When he creates hunger, there is food to correspond to the appetite. Even so, when he inclines men to pray, It is because prayer has corresponding blessing connected to it. In other words, Spurgeon says that we can, in a general sense, prove God's existence in our desire to pray to him. But more than that, he says we see the power and profoundness of prayer, that when we find ourselves in times of need, just as we are when we're thirsty, look to drink, and we come to this higher being in prayer, it proves the power of of prayer. Secondly, though, in answering this question, it tells us something about ourselves, something that we've seen throughout all of the penitential psalms, that we are weak and needy and broken. We are sinful people. We see here in verse 2 that he is crying out for the mercy of God. Why? Because he is a sinful man. In our proneness to wander, we can most definitely find ourselves in seasons of rebellion and in sin. And in those moments, we must cry out to God in repentance and confession for him to deliver us from sin. But primarily in answering this question, I think it tells us something about God. And the thing it tells us about God is this, is that he cares for us in our brokenness. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. God cares for you this morning in the midst of whatever circumstances you're facing. And so the writer of this psalm, in his trial, in his season of sorrow, from the deepest depths of despair, he looks nowhere else but to God himself. Now, not just a deity that he's made up for himself, but the one true living God, Yahweh. Notice that he says there, I cry to you. At the end of verse 2, he says, to the voice of my pleas, his, his cry for help, his pleas for mercy, then are followed by a request that God would hear him, that God would be attentive to him. And we are reminded here again in these two verses with these four words that it is good and right for us to cry out to God and plead with him to intervene on our behalf according to his good nature. If you... Take one thing away from this sermon series. I want it to be that. That God delights for his children to cry out to him on behalf of who he is. Not on behalf of who we are or what we want, but simply resting in the reality of his good character and his good nature. He is attentive. He hears our cry. So cry out to him. We're also reminded here, though, to not wait until we are in the pit to cry out to God for deliverance. Plead to God on behalf of your family and your life and this church today. 
Don't wait till the deepest, darkest pits of despair come over you. Pray to God daily. Plead to God daily. Ask him to not give you what you deserve. Notice again there that he says there, uh, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We uh, noted last week the difference between grace and mercy. Mercy being uh, not receiving what we do deserve. We, we pray this way daily. Lord, don't give us what we deserve today. Show us mercy, Lord. The reality is, though, is that we do find ourselves in the pit of despair from time to time. Sometimes it's because of our own sinfulness. Sometimes it's a because of the sinfulness of others, but the reality is, is we all live in a fallen world and we will find ourselves in the pit. This reminds me of Jonah chapter 2. If you would, uh, turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. I want us to see something here in the story of Jonah that relates so beautifully to what we see here in verses 1 and 2. You're familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah is running away from God because he doesn't like the call that God has placed on his life to go to the Ninevites. And so he gets on a ship and heads in the opposite direction and a storm comes and looks to consume the ship that he's on. And he and the men that are there, um, uh, they, they come to the realization that it's Jonah's fault. And so they cast him overboard and he, he, he finds himself seeking to the deepest, darkest pits of the ocean. And yet God delivers him by sending a great fish to swallow him. But what I want us to notice here is Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Specifically verses 5 and 6. Jonah prayed this. He said, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah found himself sinking down to the deepest, darkest parts of the ocean, and he was completely helpless, and he cried out to God, and God delivered him. Are you in a deep pit of despair today? For those of you who are in Christ this morning, if you find yourself in a deep pit of despair, cling to the truth of the reality that Christ has already taken on the punishment of sin and death that you deserve. But also understand that you cannot fix your problem in and of yourself. Like David and his sin with Bathsheba where he was trying to cover up his sin. This morning, dear friend, bring your sin into the light. Cry out to God to deliver you from sin. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. But maybe this morning you are not a Christian. And you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the reality for you this morning is you are stuck eternally in the deepest pit of despair because of your sin. And like Jonah, there is nothing you can do to save yourself from the darkness of the depths of the sea. Or like Lazarus, there is nothing you can do to bring yourself back to life unless Christ comes and cries out, Lazarus, come forth, or sends a fish to deliver you. The good news for you this morning, dear friend, is that God has made a way. He has sent a way of deliverance as we've just sung of this morning. He sent his son 
who died on the cross in your place. And if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus today, you will be saved and find forgiveness eternal. Look to Christ this morning from the pits of despair. The second thing that we see in this passage in verses three and four is that God grants us a forgiveness we do not deserve. Verse three of chapter 130 of of this psalm is, is one of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms. Linguistically, it is, it is a beautiful tool that the writer uses. He asks two questions here that he already knows the answer to. The first question he asks there in verse 3 is, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. In other words, Lord, do you keep track of our sin? Do you count sin against us? This word mark here uh, means to watch over or to keep a record of. Interestingly, this is the same word that's used later in verse 6 for watchmen, and we know that God indeed sees our sin and counts it against us. We've already seen this in the penitential psalms. We saw this in Psalm 38 verse 9, where the writer said, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. Nothing is hidden from the sight of God. He indeed knows our sin, but he also counts it against us and is right to do so. Uh, We saw this in Psalm 51 verse 4 where the writer said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God indeed does see our sin and count us against it against us. The second question that he asked though there in verse 3 is, who can stand Who is it that can stand in the judgment of God? And we know, according to Scripture, the answer to that question is no one. No one can stand in the judgment of God. Not even the godliest person who's ever walked on this earth, the most religious person to ever walk on this earth, can stand in the judgment of God. Psalm chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 say, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so in asking these questions, he he brings the answer to us clearly. I want us to notice, though, there the word stand at the end of verse 3. This word stand in the Hebrew is used uh, to speak of someone who stands in front of their superior for an inspection or an evaluation. And so many of you are in in the military or have served in the military. You know what it's like to stand in front of your superior as they evaluate uh, your dress to make sure that you, are, you look according to the standard that has been set before you, standing in front of your superior for that inspection. And the truth that we see here in verse 3 is, is when we stand before God and he looks to us, we will not make the cut. But there's great hope to be found this morning in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. There's forgiveness to be found in the cross of Christ this morning. Now, in our day, there is a wrong view of forgiveness, and you, you sense this when you share the gospel with people and you talk about sin and forgiveness. There's this idea that God just, he just brushes sin under the rug, that everybody gets to go to heaven because God is, is, is a forgiving God, and he just kind of sets it to the side. If that's our view of forgiveness, we do not believe in the one true God of the Bible. He would not be a just and good judge if that's how he handled Forgiveness. No, sin must go punished. 
And so the forgiveness that we know rightly according to Scripture is that the sin and the punishment we deserve, Christ took in our place at the cross. Christ takes the fall by standing in our place before the superior in that evaluation. He takes the fall for our sin so that through faith we might receive his righteousness. But notice what all of this is, to, is, is, is for at the end of verse 4. It says that you may be feared. Forgiveness is not meant for us to go on sinning, but that we would live in a holy reverence of God. The question we need to ask from time to time is what does it mean to fear the Lord? Martin Luther had a very helpful way of uh, distinguishing between different types of fear. And he, he identified two types of fear that help us understand what a true, genuine fear of God should look like. The first one that he identified is what we call servile fear, which is a dreadful type of anxiety. That word servile in the Latin means slave. You could also think of a prisoner who is in prison and they always have the burden of, of, the, of the guards coming and torturing them in the chamber. This, this, this present sense of danger that is always there for them. Uh, this is not a healthy type of fear. Now, there are some aspects to this type of fear that are true of how we consider God and his holiness. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. There is indeed a sense of dread when we consider the holiness of God and our sinfulness. But Luther identifies a second type of fear that is more appropriate according to what we see in Scripture. And that's what he identified as filial fear. Now, filial is a Latin word uh, that speaks to the family unit. Uh, and so filius in Latin means son. Uh, and then philia in Latin means daughter. And so this type of fear refers to the, the fear that a child has for their father or their mother. They have a great respect and love for their parents. They truly want to please them. They're afraid of offending the one who loves them and cares for them because they know that their source of everything is found in that parent. And Luther suggested this is the appropriate type of fear that we should have, that we, in Christ, if we are truly in Christ this morning, will have a deep and genuine respect and love for God, that we truly, genuinely want to please him, that we are afraid of offending him. As we've talked about so often, the, the heart of contrition, where our sorrow for sin is because it's an offense against God himself. And we, we have this Fear of God because we know he is our source of everything. Listen, in the church today, we need to return to this type of fear and reverence and awe of God. Hear me. Jesus is not your homeboy this morning. We do not come into this place flippantly this morning to, be, to cozy up next to Jesus. We come into this place this morning and reverence and awe to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the type of fear that we must have that emphasizes a genuine awe and respect for the glory of God and who he is and what he has done. That God himself came near to us in a manger some 2,000 years ago and he lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose victoriously over sin and death. And dear friends, he is coming again. 
One commentator said of this, he is not feared only because of his great judgment and harshness, but also because of his great love in forgiving us. In my copy of God's word, next to verse 3, I have written down four cousins. Cousins is the term that missionaries use to speak of Muslims. And when I come to this verse, I think of the billions of Muslims who live on this earth right now who have a wrong type of fear of God. A type of fear of God that is leading them to eternal damnation. There's a problem that the Muslims have when you ask a Muslim if they know that their sins are forgiven, their response will be, if God wills it. And if you ask them if they know that they will spend eternity in heaven, their response will be, if God wills it. On the day of judgment, do you know if you will stand in eternity? And their response will be, if God wills it. If you know anything of of the Muslim faith, you know that they work diligently and hard to fulfill five pillars, and at the end of the day, it is all for nothing for them. Because they do not worship the one true living God, and they have a fear of God that is not right and healthy. If you know the forgiveness of God this morning, you will live in a type of fear that respects him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this morning, let this fear impact every area of your life in a positive way. Those things that you do in secret are not hidden from God. He knows. How do you drive your car in the midst of San Antonio traffic? How do you work in a day where the world is so wicked and evil? How is it that we come in this place and worship? All of that is impacted by this truth this morning that if we know the forgiveness of God, we will live in awe and reverence towards him. The third thing that we see in this passage this morning is that we hope in the Lord knowing that he will return. We see this in verses 5 and 6. You see a lot of waiting and hoping in these two verses. Uh, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. Uh, These words, hope and wait, are interchangeable. You could use them both at each time that they're used in verses 5 and 6. And and it speaks to the reality in the Christian life that there is a constant anticipation that we have that Christ is returning. Uh, We mentioned Advent season last week, and, and and it's very fitting that we can think about this again this morning. The same anticipation that those of old and the Old Testament had of of Messiah's coming, we still live with today, knowing full well that he's already come and conquered sin and death, but that he's coming again. We live with this type of expectation. The king is coming And we know he's coming because he tells us this according to his word. Notice that it it says there in verse 5, And in his word I hope. 
this phrase here in the Hebrew denotes a, a new act of salvation that is to come. Even the writer here is putting his hope in a Messiah to come. And, and the hope that we have is, is in a sure promise, not a hope of uncertainty. Not that we hope to be successful in our job without a sense of certainty or that we hope that our children grow up to thrive in this world. This is a sure thing for the believer. He will come again. And we see this in the repetition of verse 6 when the writer repeats himself and says, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. This is a, a good hermeneutical lesson for us this morning, uh, uh, how we study the word of God. When the writer repeats himself, he's doing it to emphasize something. And the emphasis this morning, dear friend, is that Christ will return. And we must be prepared like the watchman over the evening is expecting the sun to rise. He knows it is coming and he waits with it and longs for its return. We, we know this morning that Christ is returning. Uh, my, my pastor um, would regularly use this illustration to, to emphasize this point. Uh, and and it's, it's a helpful illustration. It's simple, somewhat silly. Um, but, but when you're a child, if your parents tell you that you're going to Disney World uh, the next week, and, and I know there's some controversy over Disney, do, do we boycott, do we not, just set that aside for a moment, just focus on the illustration. Uh, Disney World, in a lot of ways, is the Michael Jordan of vacations. That's my point here. We can talk about Disney another time. Uh, but if your parents say, kids, we're going to Disney World le next week, how do you live in the week leading up to Disney? You are on your best behavior. You make your bed every day. You clean up after yourself. You're kind to your siblings. You tell your mom and dad how much you love them. You work really hard on your homework. Why? Because Disney World is coming. This is how we live the Christian life with this type of expectation. Christ will return. So we live accordingly. Don't wait until tomorrow, dear friend, to get things right with God. Don't say, oh, next year my family will commit to the life of the church, or next month I'll reconcile with my wife. Well, let's just get through the end of this year and we'll get things right. Or, or tomorrow I'll start reading my Bible. Don't wait. Christ is coming. Live for him today. The fourth thing that we see here finally in verses 7 and 8 is that we hope in the Lord knowing he is faithful. You see there in verse 7 it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. The hope we have this morning in the Lord is not as individuals, it is corporate. We hope together in the Lord. We share in this hope. And we experience and know of this hope according to the word of God. Again, I, I draw your attention back to where he said in verse 5, and in his word, I hope, as we sit under week in and week out the preaching and teaching of the word of God, we are essentially saying we hope in the Lord as a congregation and in membership and covenant together. And this hope rests not in ourselves, but what God will do, that he will keep us to the end. Now, what's the word that I've, I've said time and time again that we need to remember here? This great Hebrew word, the word hesed, we see it again in verse 7. For with the Lord there is what? 
steadfast love, this never-ending, never-changing love of God that if you are in Christ, he will keep you to the end. We hope in this this morning. And the redemption that we hope in is, is already but not yet. Verse 8 says, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you are in Christ this morning, you have been justified. Your standing before God is, is that you bear the righteousness of Christ. Justification. But the reality is for each of us is that we continue to struggle with sin in this life. This is our sanctification, that God is making us more and more like Christ. We are already redeemed, but we have not yet fully experienced redemption. That will come on the day of glorification. When we die and leave from this earth, or Christ comes and takes us, and there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. And we will be made like Christ. Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 through 5 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall their mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he's faithful to this promise to keep us to the end. Recently, there was a song that was written, in the, uh, that was written uh, and the chorus was a simple five words. He will hold me fast. I think maybe we've sung that in our church before. But these five simple words are a profound, glorious truth that we herald as believers, that God will keep us to the end in his grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet, as we wait for that time to come, we have a responsibility, according to Scripture, to take an active role in pursuing holiness and obedience to Christ. So we persevere to the end of this life as, as, as you would in a race, that we would fight the good fight of the faith, that we would run the race with endurance, that we would be killing sin each and every day with the desire to become more and more like Jesus as we wait for that day of glory to come. I heard a pastor say this week, he said this, stop toying with sin. I think this communicates the same idea of, of the other quotes that I, I've used throughout this sermon series. Uh, sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Confess your sins today. Repent and turn anew again today to Christ. And so as we look at Psalm 130 as a whole, in light of all of these things, we see a writer who is crying out from the depths of despair to a God who is merciful and faithful. And so as we close this morning, I want us to simply just consider that truth that God is faithful. He is faithful to forgive our sins. He is faithful to his promises to keep us and to help us in our time of need. And so whatever your circumstances are today, 
Whether you are in the lowest of lows or you are in the highest of highs, your job is going well, your family's doing well, everything is going well in your life. Or maybe you are in the deepest, darkest pit of despair. The message is the same for each and every one of us this morning, and that is this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ today. He alone is our hope of salvation in the midst of this chaotic and dying world. Will you pray with me?